0: Good evening. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Oh God, we cry out to you from a place of need. We cry out to you longing to hear your voice. You said your sheep hear your voice, and we long to hear your voice and to be brought into deeper and fuller life in a way that glorifies you in this city and around the world. We pray that your Spirit would make your word effective active working in our hearts tonight and we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory amen the Christian life is about a person it is about a person who has entered into the world and offered himself for the life of the world it's about a person who gives life the kind of abundant and never-ending life that we are all seeking it's about a person who calls us to something beyond ourselves, outside ourselves, above ourselves, and who gives to us the very thing that he calls us to have. It is about the relation between God and man, the very, and, and the renewal of the world, all of which center on the person of Jesus, the one in whom God and man are perfectly united and reconciled. Jesus is the object of our study and our devotion, of our worship, of our obedience, of our love, of our life and we engage with Jesus not as we might engage in the subjects of physics or history or mathematics all subjects which can rightly excite at least some of our minds and sustain our attention but from which we at least in the core of ourselves remain detached or disconnected but with Jesus this is different we engage with him personally that is to say that the Christian life is about a person yes But the Christian life is also deeply personal. It's a life of self-involvement, of engagement with this person that is at the center. It is about you and me in our lives each and every day, each and every breath, living them before God, before the God who is present, the God who rules, the God who loves. It is about allegiance and trust, about yielding and following and serving That is what the Christian life is about and at the central at the the central invitation in the Christian life at the heart of it all is an invitation to trust this person. And I want you to hear me say this let's not make Christianity more complex than we ought. It is at its core quite simple an invitation from the person of Jesus to trust him. That is the central message of John's Gospel. It is the central message of our text for this evening. And I might add that the invitation from him to trust is not simply a one-off, one-time invitation that we accept and then move beyond. It certainly does, in our lives, have a beginning when we first respond to the invitation. But it is a regular, a daily, and out and an hourly, and even a moment-by-moment invitation from the living Lord of the universe to yield our lives into his sovereign hands, It is a call that meets us every day when we wake up and the anxieties and the worries and the uncertainties and the fears of that day begin to flood into our minds. In that moment, Jesus is inviting us to trust. It's a call that meets us when we are affected by the actions of others. It's a call that meets us in our joys and in our pains and our successes and in our failures. It's a call that meets us in our temptations and even a call that meets us when we are running the other way from God turning our back upon him by engaging in greed or lust or gossip or lying or slander. The call, the invitation issued by Jesus is always there saying, trust me. That's what he says to us. Believe into, that's the idiom of John's gospel, believe into me. And this is what the Christian life is about. It's a life of trusting Jesus. And there is no more profound truth and perhaps no more simple truth in all the world. Than this invitation from Jesus to trust him. I want to say we are generally very good at obscuring this simplicity. The complexities of life become what life is all about for us. Meetings, challenging family dynamics at home, college applications for all of you who are seniors out there in high school, romantic relationships, ministry events, small groups, and on and on. These can become the main event when in fact all of these are actually just contexts within which the profound but simple reality that Jesus is the core of the Christian life and we are called to trust him is to be practiced and lived through all of those things. Trusting Jesus is the heart. He is the center whose constant invitation to trust, confronts us, or I should say woos and compels us in any and every context of our lives. That includes the context of today for us as individuals, for us as a church body. The invitation is to trust Jesus. And that doesn't mean that the complexities or the trials go away, but it absolutely changes the way that we engage with them and live through them. Instead of clenched fists, there are open hands Instead of racing hearts, there is a calm spirit. Instead of insatiable appetites for satisfaction or control, there is abundant, genuine satisfaction. Instead of shaking knees, there are solid steps into the trial. Because there is trust in Jesus. And this changes our lives. Actually, it's not true. The trust doesn't change our lives. In a sense, it does. But it's the person at the center in whom we trust who changes everything he changes our presence in the midst of the turmoil we want to know him the scriptures speak of him that's why the church is a a people of a people who gather around the the written word of god because in that word it points us to jesus and we want to see him and know him we're we're beginning or we're uh, restarting our series in the gospel of john this evening entitled come and see and the whole point of this series which we began last september is to come and see jesus it's to see him and. To know him and to to touch him and to taste him and to come into a deeper communion with him. This one who calls us to trust. Today we look at John chapter 6 verses 22 to 35 and we encounter perhaps his most profound message in the Gospel of John. This sermon we would call it the bread of life sermon and we'll spend at least a couple of weeks in this sermon. This comes on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000 the day before and walking on water to go meet his disciples in the storm in the boat. The crowd had come to the other side of the sea, to Capernaum, and they were there, we're told in verse 24, seeking Jesus. That's why they came. They were seeking him. And there are wonderful depths in this message in John 6. But my hope is to keep this simple, to think about trusting Jesus, coming to Jesus, and having life. We're going to look at five points that unfold as we walk through this text around food, actually. The bread of life. So first, Jesus's initial words to the crowd raise the question of motive. And this is important to address. This is what Jesus says in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It's actually a surprising rebuke because the day before, after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they actually had an effort to make Jesus king by force. But it's a brilliant and subtle and nuanced rebuke from Jesus and one that we need to hear even today let me address married couples for a moment have you ever and I've only heard that this can happen had the experience where your spouse gets into bed before you at night maybe an hour or two on a cold winter night and later you crawl into bed frozen hands and feet and you slide over and give your spouse a hug well that's not really because you want to be with or near your spouse if you're honest It's because you want to get warm and that is the most efficient and effective way to do so in that moment. Even if it's torture for your spouse. You're coming to your spouse to get something that you need and you want. And in a similar way it's a bit like what Jesus is saying here. Why are you coming to me? Is it to get what you think you need? What you want? Is it because you ate your fill of the loaves? The question is, do we come to Jesus for Jesus' sake or for the sake of satisfying some need or want that we have, that we want Jesus to provide or to give? Again, it's a subtle point, but it is crucial for the Christian life. About a year ago, walking through the long and protracted discernment process with all of you, uh, God gave me several lessons in the midst of that. But one of the most powerful, which I've shared with some of you before, came when Jesus posed this question to me. Mark, do you desire me more than you desire clarity? Do you desire me more than you desire clarity? It was a gentle rebuke. Desire me first, supremely. Don't snuggle up to me to get what you really want or need, which isn't me. I am what you need. I am what you want. I'm all that you need. Come, Jesus is saying, come to me. I wonder, do we approach Jesus as a dispenser of other goods that we would like in the midst of life? Or do we seek him because he is the one great good of life? Would you say, what would Jesus say to you if he were to speak this to you now? Why are you seeking him? In a real sense, the whole point of Jesus' sermon in John 6 is to say simply this, seek me for me. Seek me for me. And that becomes clearer as he continues on and as we'll end this time today with him saying, I am the bread of life. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. I, Jesus is saying, I am all that you need. Our second point, Jesus calls them to work for the food that endures. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Don't labor, don't invest, don't pour yourself into the pursuits of this world for the food that perishes. This means physical food specifically, but it can mean so much more. Everything outside of a context of God that we long for and labor for and work for, the things of this world. How often is this where we put our efforts and our energy so much? Our world and even us needs to hear this. We think of Jesus's words to the rich fool in Luke 12. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How so much of our world and so many of us labor and work hard for the food that perishes. Neglecting the food that endures to eternal life. And how fleeting it is. I want to be clear and say I'm not saying at all that it's problematic to work hard and to be successful in what you do. I'm not saying in any way that it's problematic if, for example, you're a student, that you apply yourself to the work that God has put before you in your studies. On the contrary, I believe wholeheartedly that God wants us to apply ourselves to the vocations to which he has called us for his own glory. And we are to labor in those vocations for his sake and honor. But there is a worshipful way to labor, a way to be God-directed and Jesus-trusting in our labors. And we apply ourselves not so that we can become somebody or gain something through them. That's what I would call the pursuit of greatness, which comes from a deep lack. No, we apply ourselves and work as an expression of glorifying God who loves us and gave himself up for us, all, for, for us all. And that's what I would call the pursuit of excellence, which comes out of a sense of fullness and worship and gratitude. Greatness, which we all often seek is a food that perishes, excellence is the result of having fed upon the food that endures to eternal life. It along with other things is an expression in daily life and work of trusting Jesus. Breathing in and breathing out the presence of God in Christ manifests itself in the quality of our labors. I learned this lesson at a Christian owned and operated company at which I worked during my summers in college. The owner ensured that we did everything with excellence in a kind of Colossians three twenty-three type of way from sweeping the floor to doing the dishes to interacting with customers to literally picking up any piece of trash that we saw on the property. We could never walk by a piece of trash without putting it in a trash can. And it was a great lesson to me as a young man about pursuing this. But I must say that in this cultural context of that company, it wasn't about pursuing the food that perishes at all. It was actually all about an expression of our fullness in Christ. It was to reflect his glory to the watching world. And particularly to customers, many of whom were not Christians, who walked through the door. The point here, Jesus says, is don't fall into the trap of working for food that perishes working for things that never really satisfy. Rather, labor for the food that endures. Give yourself to what matters most, that which lasts. And third, he then tells them where to find that food in verse 27 as we continue, which he says, the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God the Father, has set his seal. This one, this son of man, a term that Jesus uses often which evokes Daniel 7, 13 and 14 about a figure of worldwide dominion and and rule and power and kingship, a dominion that we're told in that passage is everlasting and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. These are great claims as Jesus uses this term. He says this is the one on whom the father, God the father, has set his seal for purposes of identification and power. Well, what was that seal? The seal is the Holy Spirit that descends upon Jesus at his baptism. John the Baptist talks about this in John chapter 1. And the accounts of Jesus' baptism in the Synoptic Gospels reveal this as well. We're told later in the New Testament that we too are sealed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.22, Ephesians 1.13, and Ephesians 4.30. This one who has the Father's seal on him, this Son of Man, Jesus says, He will give you the food that endures to eternal life. So he says, labor for it. And this is where you find it, from this one. This is where you find it. If this is what you want, and it is, I should say, it is what we all want, then here is where we can find it. From the Son of Man, the one sealed by the Spirit of God, this one will give us that food. And here we come to the heart of the Christian gospel. This is the core of the message of Christianity to the world. Do you want to live Do you want to have life? Then come to Jesus, the author of life, the word made flesh. Why do you labor and toil through sweat and tears to get that which perishes when there is an offer of such rich and full and good food waiting for you to take it up? When we're spent, when we're exhausted, when we're confused or anxious, Do we remember that this is where we find the food that satisfies? Throughout Jesus' message in John 6, the words of Isaiah 55 are reverberating. And these are those words, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. That's what Jesus is saying to the crowd in this text. You can find all that you're looking for, he's saying, in me. Fourth, he tells them, Not only where to get the food, but how to get the food. They ask in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus told them to labor for the food that endures to eternal life. So their question, I think, makes a lot of sense. What must we do to be doing the works of God? But I wonder if their focus reveals perhaps a faulty thinking of many of us as Christians. This is about what we do, right? It's about our work. It's about our labors. What must we do, they ask. We were created to do good works. And it is true that we do things. That was a direct allusion to Ephesians 2.10, of course. But how quick we are to make the Christian life about what we do. About our work, our efforts, our intensity, our sincerity, and so on it's so serious and so adult-like to say those things isn't it? But remember what Jesus says to his followers that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he becomes like a child. Children receive, children trust, children have a sense innately of wonder and play. Think of a child who's loving mother takes him to a park and spreads out a picnic blanket and puts out a a picnic lunch and encourages him to go and play while she sets up the meal and then invites him to come and to eat and joyfully he receives what his mother has set before him this gift that she's offered with all of the wonder and gratitude of a child. I offer that to you as a far better picture of the Christian life than what most of us probably live out in our experience. Jesus provides, Jesus prepares, Jesus sustains, Jesus takes hold of us. It's interesting his comment back to them in verse 29. This is the work of God, he says, that you believe into or in him whom he has sent. Do you see the difference between their question and his response? What must we do? This, Jesus says, is the work of who? Of you? No, of God. This is the work of God. It's God's work. God is the primary actor. And this, of course, brings us back to deep mysteries that run not only through John's gospel, but throughout the entire New Testament and all of Scripture. The sovereignty of God, the God who works, the God of grace. What does that divine grace bring about? That you believe into him whom he has sent. Belief, trust, the personal. That thing at the core of the Christian life. It's all about a person and it's personal. And the work of God is to produce and to bring about in us this reality of faith and of trust in Jesus. The way to this food, Jesus is saying, is offering back to God what God has put in us by his miraculous divine grace. We who were rebellious and dead and running the other way and unworthy, God has done a work in us. He's refashioned our lives around the life, death, and resurrection of his son. He's given us a new name and a new identity and a new purpose. God has done this work in you. And the response to that work is what we call faith. It's saying back to God, God, I walk with you. I receive you. I trust you. And Jesus is saying, this is the work of God. That you believe into him whom he has sent. There is divine sovereignty. And there is human responsibility. And we, the church, get into trouble when we try to push one of the two of those out. But we must hold them together, as the scriptures do. We can drive ourselves crazy trying to get to the bottom of this, to wrap our minds around it. But today, I would encourage us instead to simply marvel at the generosity of a God of grace... Who brings about faith in the hearts of his people for by grace you have been saved through faith Paul says in Ephesians 2 and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God the gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast this is the work of God the work of God in us the reality of his grace and we return this gift into the in it to him in the form of trust And that's not some kind of work that makes us worthy of God. It is rather the fitting response to the grace of God at work in us, to the fact that our lives have been remade by him. Fifth and finally, Jesus doesn't just tell us where to find the food or how to get the food, but he tells us, and he he, he ratchets it up here, that he doesn't just dispense the food, that he is the food. Verses 30 through 35. They talk of Moses, the crowd does, and of manna. Jesus, look, you only fed 5,000 people yesterday, but Moses, Moses fed hundreds of thousands of people over nearly 40 years in the wilderness every day. What sign are you going to give us that we should believe into you, that we should trust you, Jesus? And to this request, Jesus basically says, you aren't going to get a sign I mean I I would say and I think you would the sign of the miraculous feeding the day before was in fact a sign that pointed to his glory and of course it does but Jesus as this question comes to him throughout his ministry often and always says no what you're going to get is my life death and resurrection that three days later I rise from the dead I am the sign Jesus says the true bread from heaven, verse 32, the bread of God, verse 33, who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. Jesus is no longer just giving the bread but he now makes it clear that he, this one who is speaking to them, he is the bread of God. So they say, sir, give us this bread always. And let's just marvel at what a request that is. That is the request of our lives. Give us this bread, this food that endures to eternal life, this bread from heaven, this bread of God that gives life to the world. Give us this bread. And what do they say? Always. That's the posture of the heart of one who comes to this Jesus. Always. Not just when things are good. Not just when things are tough. Not just when they're clear or when they're confusing. Not just when I'm at peace or when I'm afraid. Not just when I'm lonely or when I have lots of friends around me. But always, God. Give us this bread. I can't live. I can't move. I can't make it another day without this bread in my life. Give us this bread. And his response is beautiful. And it is the first of the seven great I am statements in the gospel of John with a predicate object. We've actually encountered I am already in John 4 and in John 6. But this is the first one that says I am and then fills it in with something. And in this case, Jesus says I am the bread of life. And it really says, I am the bread of the life with a definite article. Full life, overflowing life, never ending life. Jesus says, that's who I am. I am that bread. And then he states again, the work of God. Verse 35 continues, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here we are again with the personal, come to me believe into, or trust me. This is about a person, about Jesus, the bread of life, and it's about him inviting us into a relation with his person, with him. Come to me, believe into me, trust me. It's about leaning upon him. My youngest daughter is into trust falls right now, And occasionally she'll just have daddy come over and let me fall back into your arms. And a couple of times I almost dropped her. She once went all the way down to the ground on our wooden floor in the dining room. But that's a picture of what Jesus is saying to us. Trust me. Fall into my arms. He'll never drop us. He'll hold us. And he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. A lavish feast in which he offers himself the bread of life to us. The food that endures to eternal life. This is what he has come to give so that we would never hunger again and never thirst again. No more labor for the food that perishes, but now rest in the work of God in us. A life of trusting in him. This is the simplicity of the Christian life laid out before us here by Jesus in this beautiful message. It's coming to him day by day, moment by moment, this relation of trust with the person at the center of our faith that colors and changes all of our relationships, all of our circumstances, and all of our responses to what we encounter in the world. We bring this relation to Jesus into every circumstance, into every response, with our neighbors, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, when there is conflict and when there is peace, when there is anger and when there is calm, when there is clarity and when there is confusion, when there is agreement and when there is disagreement, there is no moment, no context in which Jesus, the bread of life, is not present. There is no moment in which we are not at least presented with the possibility of being full, no longer hungry and satisfied, no longer thirsty. Now, I know that as we live our lives, it doesn't always feel this way. We all have days where we are more in line with this fullness than others. But I want to close with something for us to aim for. For the marks of full people. People who enjoy and practice this living relation with Jesus in one's every day. What, What might those people look like? To give us some things to think about in the week ahead. And I'll just rattle off several. First, a kind of Ignatian holy indifference. That is a contentment in whatever circumstances that God has for us. So Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And what's the the secret key there for him? That Christ has strengthened me. He's fed on the bread of life. Second, a confident hope that one day all will be well. This is native to our faith. The author of Hebrews calls hope a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So that whatever it is that we may be facing, as we are relating to Jesus in the midst of it, there is a deep and abiding hope that anchors the soul through all of the contingencies of our lives. Third, a true and lasting joy. Jesus says, my jo-, he, he tells us these things in John 15, so that my joy will be in you and that your joy might be complete. We think of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail at midnight singing psalms of praise and hymns to God. That is a joy that cannot be bound by bad and difficult circumstances. Fourth, I would say a genuine meekness. Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Alluding back to Psalm 37. And I would define meekness in this way. Those who know so deeply that God is for us, that we no longer have to be for ourselves, but we can be for God and for others. And we can bring that meekness into every circumstance. Fifth, a genuine peace that does not depend upon certain outcomes. Because Jesus has overcome the world. Because he has conquered the grave. Because the war is over, even as it lingers on. That peace that surpasses all understanding. That will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It is in Christ Jesus, the bread of life, that we have that peace. And sixth, an orientation to the needs of others in living a life of genuine love. There was a beautiful expression of this at Park Street Church yesterday as the warming center had its first day on a Saturday. And this is an open door in the fellowship hall downstairs where our neighbors who experience homelessness can have a warm place to come in and get a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or a sandwich and enjoy a conversation with one of our volunteers, be prayed for, or just have time to sit in silence and get warm. It was a beautiful expression of fullness in Christ. All of this, I would suggest, is what trusting this person, Jesus, the bread of life, makes possible for each of us in every situation that doesn't mean that circumstances aren't difficult it doesn't mean that we don't weep and lament and strive to make the world a, a more right and just place Jesus our Lord and example the fullest human being who ever lived did all of these things but we do them in the larger context of our fullness that comes from him we do them in his presence resting and satisfied as those who have come to him as those who trust him and worship him this is the Christian life it is about a person whose name is Jesus and it is personal because that person invites us to trust him to feed on him the bread of life let's pray oh Lord Jesus we worship and adore you what an incredible reality that you said to that crowd long ago that you are the bread of life and that whoever comes to you will never hunger and whoever believes in you will not be thirsty again. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you in our lives right now. We need to feed upon you. and We pray that you would grant us a deep sense of your presence and that we would be able to feed upon you the bread of life and by your spirit how we long to live lives that reflect those who are full full of you for your glory please make it so for your name's sake we pray amen